Good morning. The reading this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And this is, of course, the Apostle Paul speaking. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is our very last sermon series on race. And I'm looking out at the congregation thinking, did half the church leave, literally? Because there's nobody sitting over here. And I know that's, <laughs> and that is because uh, we have, I think, five families away on vacation today. And I'm thinking, when are we, because of COVID, we came up here. I'm thinking it's probably time for us to move back down and be on the sanctuary floor. But as we've been through our sermon, on, sermon series on race, we've looked at really five key things that we need to keep in mind. And I want to go, we will be looking at the fifth one today, and I want to go over them again because I think they're very important. The first thing we looked at is doing nothing is not okay. So the systemic racism that's in our community cannot be ignored. We need a kingdom vision to address this. The second thing we looked at is that this is not a new problem. It's a problem that's been around uh, since at least the formation of the church, if not before then. It begins with worship, with lament and confession, and last week, Kyle, in preaching on King Lemuel, looked at the, the importance of being blessed to be a blessing, using our voice and our power and our resources to address the areas of brokenness. Today, we're going to look at this idea of acting incarnationally, being a bridge to racial, across racial, social, and economic boundaries. Now, before we jump into today's sermon, in looking at those last four, I really don't think anybody here or anyone as part of North Point would have a problem with those ideas. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not hard to recognize that there is a problem with systemic racism, and it's not hard to realize that we really should do something about it. No one would argue the fact that it should begin with worship, with looking at Christ, and, and getting the heart and the mind of Christ, and seeing that our, uh, adopting that posture of, oh my gosh, Perhaps it's not me, myself, who is uh, inherently racist, but I'm part of a society which is broken and dysfunctional, and for that, I need to be sad, I need to uh, confess on behalf of the brokenness which I'm living in and part of. And then, uh, but then the question becomes, what do we really do about it? What do we practically do about it? Where do we go with that? And I recently got an email from somebody who was not happy about the fact that we're doing this series, telling me that 
he had been going to a church which is more diverse than ours, and he thought the reason for that was because they didn't focus on race, they focused on Jesus. And the implication being, if we just focus on Jesus, the problem of race will go away. And I, I get the frustration on some level, right? Last week, Kyle preached on King Lemuel from, from Proverbs 31, where the king had responsibility for everything under him. He had responsibility for those who were being treated unjustly and those who were being justly. Not only was he, he was more than invited into that problem, it was his responsibility to go and address those problems. But sometimes I think uh, we in Danvers are stuck with this problem. What do we do about it? What do we do in our community when we look around and there really isn't that much racism right in front of us to do something about? There isn't much of a systemic destruction, or at least it's so it appears right in front of us. And sometimes it feels like we're in the playground, and you know this picture of kids in a playground, but one of them falls over and gets a gash in their leg. And they start to scream and, and shout, and then all the other kids around them start to scream and shout, and everyone screams and shouts because someone's got a good gash in their leg. But nobody calmly comes in to calmly address the wound. Nobody enters into the problem to say, what can we do to fix this? Everybody is screaming, everybody is making a lot of noise, but it's sometimes hard to tell who are the healers in the issues of systemic racism and who are the noise makers. Who are the ones who are doing the screaming and the running around and who are those who are finding ways of systemically or are actively addressing what's going on. What is your reaction when you drive around Danvers and you see all these signs in the yards which say Black Lives Matter? Is your response to that, first of all, to jump up and say, oh, that's what I heard last week when Carl was preaching about King Lemuel. That's someone who's using their voice. Or do you have the opposite reaction, that that's some sort of radical political uh, movement that's out to destroy our culture? Now, I'm not saying that uh, there aren't, uh, there are necessarily answers in that, but... The question we have to answer as, question, uh, as Christians is, how do we make a difference? How do we make a real difference rather than get caught up in what sounds like just a lot of noise? And I'm not saying those signs are noise or that they're not noise. I'm just saying that we as Christians need to find a path, a bridge, a way through this which doesn't add to the thrill debate that's out there, that doesn't add to that noise and starts to look constructively at what we can do. And the great thing about the passage we read, Philippians 2, 1 to 8, is that it does say, just focus on Jesus. It absolutely says that. And it doesn't, unfortunately, say the problem will go away. It does say focus on Jesus. It doesn't say the problem will go away. So in a sense, that email comment that I got about just focus on Jesus and the problem will go away, the passage we're reading today says in an opposite way, focus on Jesus to find a path to engage constructively, but don't expect this to lead to a solution immediately or in the here and the now. So let me put up a slide which, uh, which lays out this passage for you. Uh, and it was read, as Rob read it before, I sort of broke it down like this. Be immersed 
in our Christ-bound unity, be immersed in our Christ-given love, spirit, tenderness, compassion, be unified in the spirit and mind of Christ and do what Jesus did, which is look out for each other's needs above our own by entering into the mess and addressing the wound, and do that in humble obedience in engage incarnationally and a way of summing that all up is because of what jesus did for us uh, we do what jesus did for others so we're going to look at this passage we're going to break it down into three things we're going to look at method posture and reason method incarnational posture humility reason obedience so let's begin with this idea of method. What does it mean to be incarnational? It's a big word. It's a big theological word, incarnational. And what it really means is to enter in, enter into a mess. And I want you to picture what it must have been like for Jesus to be with the Father and the Spirit in heaven, in, in, the, in the realm of uh, just God, tr Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, before he, he was incarnated into this world. Now, I, I'm trying to even picture that because I cannot think of any place which is completely perfect. It's either a little too noisy or not noisy enough. Too many people or not enough people. Very beautiful, but I'm going to get tired. I, I, I try, to, try to think of an image that would work. Is it the perfect skiing experience? Is it hanging out with family and having great food? And perhaps it's all of them exactly when you want them in exactly the amount you want them with perfect weather, constantly without, and, and still having time for yourself to get some space and do some reading and never being tired or exhausted and always feeling, I, I can't even create the image of perfection that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit had before Jesus said, no, I'm leaving this perfection. I'm leaving this completely uh, satisfied, completely everything I want. There is nothing missing existence. And I'm entering into the mess of the world. I'm becoming human. I'm going to walk amongst people uh, who steal, uh, who beat, who lie, who cheat. I'm going to be forced to compete for, for food and for resource. People are going to, my friends are going to abandon me. I'm going to be judged and misjudged, misrepresented. I'm going to be lonely. I'm going to be cold. I'm going to be hungry. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be whipped. I'm going to be tormented. I'm going to be hung on a cross, even unto death. Why would anyone enter into that? But that's incarnational ministry. It's coming in. And the answer, of course, is not because something was missing. It's because of love. It's because of Christ's incredible love for us. It was because of his love for us that he's willing to leave all of that and enter into this and be with us. Now, the passage says very clearly we are to do what Christ did. We would imitate Christ. We were entering. We're to be incarnational as we engage. So what does that mean for issues as complicated as things like race? I just want to pick one example because I want to just look around us. Let's look 10 miles in each direction. And if you look at the school districts, which is something I have experienced working in as a counselor, in Ipswich, Wenham, and Danvers. I've been to each of those school districts. I've been into those schools. Those schools are predominantly white. They have an enormous amount of resource. And 
the school performance of those schools is really, really high. When you walk into Lynn and Chelsea and Revere, those schools are predominantly not white. Uh, there is not a lot of resource, and they are school districts which are not doing well at all. And we can all throw up our hands, and we can make a lot of noise, we can run around like kids in a playground and come up with solutions which sound good, right? If those on the political right will say it's all about political responsibility. And I looked up what is it that reasonable people on the political right postulate as solutions. And some of those things are things like school vouchers and charter schools. And these seem like systemic ideas that may make some positive difference. And then I looked up what people, reasonable people on the political left see as being the solution. And again, uh, perhaps the biggest and most uh, significant suggestion which has been made and even tried is the idea of busing. Now, maybe these things help, maybe these things, and then certainly those who engage in politics and do that faithfully as Christians and as we vote, we should consider those things. Those are important things. I'm not saying that they aren't things that we should consider. But there's definitely more here. Uh, and, and it's certainly not less than those things, but it's certainly a lot more than those things. When I go into the schools in Lynn and Chelsea and Revere, I often go in to IEP meetings. And in those IEP meetings, I see what's not working. And I see, I see families where parents are working three jobs, where people live in houses where there are five or six kids in three bedrooms, where there is no space for uh, doing homework. I see libraries which are so small and anemic that you couldn't get books even if you tried. And I wonder how these families stretched in every area, uh, economically, uh, medically, uh, the family dynamics, how they can access these school vouchers and these charter schools even if they could fully. Now, these, this is not the full solution to the problem. Perhaps some people in that context could, uh, could access that systemic intervention. I looked also at whether busing was successful or not successful, and it's interesting. The jury seems to be out on that. Both black and white people think that busing was either moderately successful or quite, uh, quite a, a failure in many ways. One thing, one statistic that comes out of that is in Boston, before busing, the situation was 60, the schools were about 60, 60, 70 percent segregated. Now they are 80 percent segregated. So we find that uh, these ideas, and one of the reasons for that, by the way, is the busing led to white people fleeing to the suburbs and or setting up private schools. So, so we see that these systemic solutions really may dent around the edges, but they're not really getting at the key to what can be done. But they do allow us to make a lot of noise. We can sit around arguing whether we should be left-wing or right-wing, whether this policy or that policy is better. We can look down on each other and condemn each other for whatever political perspective we take. But they really don't help us engage, other than pontification, debate, kids making noise in a playground, these aren't relevant unless we're in politics or voting. 
what would it mean to be incarnational respect to race? And I've seen this actually when I was in New York City. My wife and I looked at the possibility of going to a church in Harlem and we went and saw the pastor and we decided not to go but we did stay connected with them after a while. Now the rule of that church was if you wanted to attend this church and they really did want to encourage anybody to attend, you had to move to that neighborhood. And the theory for that was that if you moved to that neighborhood and you sent your kids, oh, and you had to send your kids to those schools. And if you did that, you were going to make sure those schools were going to be good schools. And so a lot of people who felt called to do so moved to Harlem, into that particular area. It was a, it was a pretty nasty part of Harlem. And a lot of those families sent their kids to those schools. And we actually, in following up, often went to some of the presentations and the, uh, the sort of um, the evenings where they would present how that church was working. And we saw people making a difference, but we also saw families that were really struggling. We saw kids that suffered from that. We saw people really entering into a community and say, we're going to live and we're going to shop and we're going to go to the doctor, and we're going to get medical treatment, and we're going to send our kids to school. And we care about this because we're in it with them. And it's no longer them and us. It's just us. And there were lots of tears because there was lots of suffering, and the cost on those families was very high, but they made a difference. And the question, of course, is sometimes I, I wonder, and I think this is the choice that Patty and I made, would it be right to put our children on the altar like that? And the interesting question is, I wonder if we should ask the question, is it right that we put our neighbor's children on the altar like that? Is it right that we put the children of Lynn and Revere and Chelsea on the altar like that? Let's put ourselves to the Philippians 2, 3, 5 test. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, does that mean we all need to move to Revere and put our kids in the school there? No. If you remember the first sermon we did, we talked about... People are called to different areas of ministry, called to engage in specific uh, ways. Now, not everyone is going to be called like those families were to move into an area like that. Not everybody is called to serve in Afghanistan. Not everybody is called to specific ways of incarnational ministry. But we all are called to be incarnational in the way we live our lives. So practical solutions mean moving beyond theology and theories and statistics Practical solutions require us to enter into each other's stories. Healing and reconciliation require us to know and to be known by one another, to come alongside with, to walk with, to do life on life with our whole family. That means that those divisions that exist as you cross between Wenham and Salem and Revere and Linfield, that those need to break down somehow. The reality is we have to be intentional about escaping our racial and economic bubbles. And we are ethnically and economically tribal people. 
in all the wrong ways, based on idols of emotion and comfort and self-preservation and fear. And that is true inside and outside the church. And change is going to be uncomfortable and costly. It's going to be beautiful and exciting. It's always going to be Christ-encountering. So how do we do it? We need to be unconditional. We need to work out how we can intertwine our lives. We can live life on life with boundaries that are a little bigger, don't have to be radically bigger, but a little bigger than the socioeconomic, racial barriers and boundaries that we have right now. And we have to do that with a posture of humility. Now, I acknowledge I am tribal, and it's hard for me to walk out of my tribe. Let's get real. It's awkward. It's really awkward. At least it is for me. When we go on vacation, which we've just come back from in South Carolina, uh, we go to an island which has two, or two Presbyterian churches on it. One is black and one is white. They both look like very good churches. The white church became progressively out of sync with our understanding of the Bible, so we were left with one other choice. Let's go to the black Presbyterian church. And so we started to go to the black Presbyterian church. And I have to tell you, it was very interesting. We go to this beach, we don't really take dressy clothes. We have some clothes, but when you walk in the door, everyone's wearing a suit. There are uh, women up the back dressed in these white uniforms who walk you to your seat. And in the middle of the... So first of all, we're not dressed as we should be dressed. Secondly, we stand out like you can't believe it's possible to stand out. Secondly, because we're visitors, they walk us down the front and send us in the front pew. And, and thirdly, halfway through the service, they say, are there any visitors in the church? And of course, it's very hard at that point to disappear because yes, we are here, we're, we're visiting. So it felt, a little socially, it felt a little socially awkward, but... That wasn't anything that they did. That was just my unfamiliarity with that social culture. The other thing that was confronted me at that church was, was the sermon that we heard, because I am very used to a white North American understanding of how you interpret scripture, like leave and cleave and the power of the nuclear family. And they preached the sermon on the role of grandparents. And I was, of course, humbled, shocked, I had my theological clock cleaned because I went back to the reality of families in the biblical times and that extended family and the role of the grandparent. And in the context that they were preaching, the strong need for grandparents to be engaged in part of the lives of children, not like we do in the social bubble that I'm familiar with, which is grandparents know that they go where they're invited and they stay out where they're not invited. That is not the context of the family's constructs, either in the Bible or the one that was preached very well at this church. So I had to, my, the application of my theology, the role of Lewis and Eunice in the book of Timothy was explained well to me. I also felt a little uncomfortable financially because we're so discreet with the way we do money. We hardly even talk about it. We pass a tray. We don't even pass a tray anymore, and most of us are like... Whew, we just do that all online. They had a big box up the front. And when it's time to give, in celebration, they stand up and they 
sing and they come and they give their money as an act of worship. It is not ostentatious. It is just a, a wonderful demonstration of giving as worship. Totally foreign to me. And I was even uncomfortable financially in the sense that we are so much, we are so much more wealthy in the sense that they were doing a capital campaign and it was a church that had been around for 36 years and they started the capital campaign, we're going to ask for you to all give and we know it's going to be a sacrifice and we know you're going to have to dig deep and I'm thinking they're going to ask everyone for thousands of dollars. So we'd like you all to give one dollar for every year the church has been here. And we, we, felt, we felt our wealth and we felt awkward because of it. I will say, the worship was beautiful and exciting. Uh, it raised the roof, even with songs which I don't typically like, with hymns. That congregation was on their feet, excited and exuberant in the way they worshipped. So, when I say awkward socially, awkward theologically, awkward financially, I'm not saying that they was, there's anything wrong that was happening in that church. It's because we're crossing boundaries, we're crossing cultures. It's difficult, it's hard. I had to move out of my comfort zone, my social, theological, economic comfort zone. As a preacher and a theologian, I had to listen harder and I had to think bigger. It was a humble struggle. I had to give up a lot, a lot of assumptions, a lot of norms, a lot of beliefs. It's not that I was wrong or they were wrong, I just don't know that context. And part of my response was, quick, I'm a tribal guy, get me back to Danvers. I don't know this, this is hard. But the reality is, we, probably, we were probably less, uh, less reactive than that. But we walked away and said, well, that was a good experience. That was a good experience. And, and I was, as I've worked through this series on race, I realized what a, what a sort of, I, yes, it was a good experience, and I'm glad we did it. But, but really, what a, a lightweight level of engagement that was. And it's easy to come back. It's easy not to go. It's also easy to come back and say, well, that was a great experience. And we'll do that once a year when we go on vacation in South Carolina. But I don't think that's what incarnational ministry is. It's deeper and more powerful than that. It's asking us not to choose the easy routes, not to even move in a little bit and move back, but to be intentional about building relationships across those boundaries. And we as a church, as elders, are committed and struggling, committed and struggling to doing this. We personally, as elders, are incorporating confession and lament into our personal prayer life. We are, as a church, as elders, actively building relationships with churches across these boundaries, and we're working to bring these communities into connection with the broader North Point context. And I will say that that is slow, hard, and awkward work, but important work that we need to keep being and being intentional about. Now, you can help with this work, and you can help on three levels. You can help by tolerating, participating, or accelerating. And all of those are good, tolerating, participating, or accelerating. I would encourage you all, those who are involved in corporate worship, and we will be talking with the worship team about this, to incorporate more confession and lament for injustice. But I also encourage you 
to integrate confession and lament into your own prayer life. You can give testimonies of how encounters with Christ have occurred because you have crossed these boundaries. You can give testimonies privately to one another and you can give testimonies publicly in the church. You can, as we establish social and worship opportunities which cross these boundaries, you can connect and participate in those activities. Uh, you can also join the monthly discussion and race group that Christina leads, which looks in, looks in more detail into those issues. And when is that, Christina? That's the first Tuesday of every month. So that's what we're doing as a church. That's what we hope you are going to do. And we saw on the service of Pentecost, we had our first joint worship service. And we're going to look to continue to do social and worship activities that cross those boundaries. The elders are going to continue to try to build intentional relationships. And yes, it feels awkward. And yes, it requires us to be humble. But we, we, we recognize the need for us to be incarnational, to have lives that intertwine, not just that rub uh, up and down from a distance. So that's us as a church. What about each of us in the world? And I think it's important. I'm going to slow down and read this question. How are you going across the racial, cultural, and economic boundaries? What are the emotional comforts and fears that you're going to have to contend with as you do it? And can you do it? Let me read that again. How are you going across the racial, cultural, and economic boundaries? And they're not, it's, not a, it's not about distance. These boundaries are usually two houses away, one suburb away. How are you going across the racial, cultural, economic boundaries? What are the emotional comforts and fears that you're going to have to contend with? And can you do it? Let's put ourselves to the Philippians 2, 3, 5 test again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Because of what Jesus did for us, we do what Jesus did for others. So that is the method incarnational, the posture with humility, doing the hard work. Finally, the reason. Why are we doing this? Now, let me ask you this question. Who here thinks that Danvers, if we did something here in Danvers, it's going to change the world? Hands up. Oh, wow, I'm impressed. Two people have their hands up. All right, I'm, I'm maybe more cynical than you guys. I'm thinking that it's probably not going to change the whole world. But I'm excited by your hopefulness and your uh, sense of inspiration. Do you think that North Point can end systemic racism in the United States? Who here thinks we can do it? Dave, well, I'm, I am encouraged by the hopefulness of some of you. I personally don't think that is likely. Are you and I capable of undoing segregation in the churches on the North Shore? Hands up if you think we can do that. Oh, wow. I'm encouraged. 
I'm not sure that we'll, we'll, hopefully we can do something, but I'm not sure we're going to solve that problem completely. I would encourage us, though, to, to be all in for all of that, but let's start with a smaller question. Can we keep our own hearts pure? In the second sermon series, sermon in this series, Rob Ananucci preached about the, the Hebrew disciples who had basically forgotten about the, the Greek widows and orphans uh, because there was a, such a divide in those two cultures that they just overlooked and missed that. And you would think when that was brought to Peter's attention, he would be, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. A systemic problem in the church across racial bounds. I'll never let that happen again. Until you get to Acts 10, where Peter uh, has to confront the fact that Cornelius, an Italian, uh, a part of the Italian legion, uh, who, whose household eats all sorts of undefiled animals, wants him uh, to come and baptize them as believers. To explain the gospel to him and baptize him as believers. And Peter can't believe it. Oh no, I can't do that. That doesn't fit with my Hebrew. Just a few chapters later in Acts. Or when we get to Antioch, and Peter, by this time, is thinking, okay, you know what? We don't have to just eat with the Jews, the Greeks and the Jews, the, the Gentiles and the Jews. We should be able to eat together until some really conservative Jews come down from Jerusalem to Antioch where Peter is. And Peter, in this fit of tension, says, okay, okay, I'll eat with you, you Jews, and I'll exclude the Greeks and the Gentiles again. Three times in Peter's life, Three times in Peter's life, he couldn't even keep his own heart pure. So being incarnational to address injustice is not done because we are going to solve the world's problems if we do fantastic. It's not done to end systemic racism in the United States, although if we do, that's great. It's not even done to eliminate segregation in the churches on the North Shore, although if we achieve that, and you guys are optimistic and I'm excited, that's great too. We do it for the same reason Jesus was incarnational, to be obedient to the Father, to be obedient to Christ. It is about putting ourselves to the Philippians 2, 3, 5 test. And it's important that in that obedience, just like Paul, the Holy Spirit, and Paul kept Peter accountable two other times, the Holy Spirit through Paul and the Holy Spirit directly, kept Peter accountable we need to keep each other accountable. This is not something, as we finish this series, that we stop caring about. You need to hold your leadership in this church accountable to continuing to pursue incarnational, connected, life-on-life -life ministry outside of our social, uh, social, economic, and racial bubbles. So, to put up the last slide, if we can, this is where we're at in our series on race. It is not the end of race. It is for us at North Point. It in some ways is the beginning. Doing nothing is not okay. We need a kingdom vision. First point. Second point. It's not a new problem, but it is a missional problem. It begins with worship. It requires us to be, whilst there is injustice, in a constant state of lament and confession. We have to recognize that we're blessed to be a blessing. In other words, we use our voice and our power and our resources to address the problem. 
and we need to act incarnationally. We have to be intentional about bridging racial, social and economic boundaries. And we do this, why? Because it's what Jesus did and it's what he told us to do. Let me read again what was read earlier by Rob. This is how Jesus acted and we are told to act the same way. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then they go on to say, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is what love looks like. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, <coughs> as we conclude this series on race, as we, as we take some very, very simple ideas to heart, I pray, Father, that this is not something that we will, will drop, that we won't succumb to the awkward or the difficult, we won't look for the easy path, we will continue to act like you acted, to enter into the mess, to build boundaries with people that are not going to be easy for us to build boundaries for, and it won't be easy for them to build boundaries with us, to persevere because you persevered, to love because you loved, to enter in because you entered in. Help us to see you as our model and to find you in the midst of serving you in this way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.